All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Jonah this morning as uh, we continue in our study through, through this wonderful book. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. If you make your way there. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 4. Now what I'm going to do for context is I'm going to pick it up, uh, the last verse, Jonah chapter uh, 3, verse 10. That's where we'll start, and it reads this way. Then God saw their work, speaking of the Ninevites, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. You're like, what is up with that? Billy Graham preaches a message, millions of people get saved, and he gets displeased. He's angry. He's upset. And this is, you know, this response that you go, well, wait, wait, that doesn't make sense. Why? What is going on here? Well, let me explain what's going on uh, in Jonah's heart uh, by way of a story. And I'm going to do this just because it, it might be hard for us to sort of emotionally connect with the get, the reality of what Jonah's dealing with. And so what I want to do is I want to I tell you a real life story that is a very similar sort of end experience that emotionally gets us into the place where Jonah was at right now. Because this is really important for us. We can have an academic understanding of what Jonah's going through, but it's really important that we just get it in our guts, what's happening. And so uh, I was reading about this story, and, it, and, it's, and it's just shocking. It was April 29th, 1993. So contemporary times, there's a gal named Grace Fabian. She and her husband, Edmund, were on the mission field in Papua New Guinea. And, and there, uh, as they're serving with Wycliffe Bible translators, they're translating the Bible into the Nibak language. And so they're working on this, and they've been, you know, just giving this their whole lives, really, to this project. Uh, and as, as they're doing that, Edmund is in the, in the act of, of penning uh, the, the words, of translating 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's the exact verses that Edmund was translating on this fateful day. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And it was while he was translating those exact verses into the Nabok language that a Nabaki tribesman crept into his room with an axe and drove that axe into his skull. 
And his wife sitting in the room next to him was all of a sudden startled to see a man run by her window. And she called out to Edmund and he didn't answer. And so she went into Edmund's room and there he was in the room just adjacent to her, just a few feet away. The axe still embedded in his skull, his body slumped in the chair in a pool of blood. And this is what his wife is confronted with. Here this man, Edmund Fabian, savagely murdered by the very people that he came to save. Now, as devastating as that was, the story gets worse because it was compounded by a miscarriage of justice. They caught the man. He was a man that actually worked for them. uh, And he was tried. And despite the fact that they had an ocean of evidence, he was acquitted of her husband's murder and set free. Now, here's where the story gets really crazy. Because God spoke to grace. And God commanded grace that not only was she to forgive that man, but that she was to reach out to him in love. And grace, by the commandment of the Lord, uh, took steps to begin reaching out to this man. The first step she took was to bake him a cake. My wife, as she's reading through this book and just hearing her gasp as she's going through page after page after page, just what this woman is going through and she confiding in me the emotion she's dealing with is it's as though this woman is betraying her husband in how she's reaching out in loving acts to this murderer of the man that she spent her life with. And so there God directs her, bake the man a cake. Take this cake to him. Minister to him, share the gospel with him, sing hymns with him. Extend to the man that killed your husband the love of Jesus Christ, and so Grace did. Obediently, she, just did, she did just that, and eventually, the man would give his life to Christ and get saved. Now, fittingly, her book is titled Outrageous Grace, and it is outrageous. It is outrageous. That someone can so egregiously harm us and that God would ask us to love them, to forgive them. Some of you this morning, you're dealing with that. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And it's a heavy subject, but it's a subject that hits close to us because every single one of us, you know, if, if you ain't in the barrel this morning, your time is a coming. Or we have to deal with forgiveness. We have to be those that are called to extend this outrageous grace. And it may not be the extent that Grace Fabian had to deal with, but it seems like it at times when we're going through it emotionally. I mean, shame on us for for feeling that way, but it does. See, because here's the deal. My flesh says, man, you mess with me, I'm messing with you. Right? My flesh says, if you wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. My flesh says, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. My flesh identifies with Officer Jimmy Malone, the untouchables, as he's counseling Elliot Ness there. And he says, you tell them they put one of your guys in the hospital, you're going to put two of their guys in the grave. And that's what my flesh says. And all of us go, yep, I'm there. And it feels good. Man, I, I envision, I think... You know, the guys, my daughter, Megan, bringing home the pond scum that she would bring home from time to time. These losers coming into my house. And I would have no problem, and it would feel so good in my flesh to say, you know, listen, buddy, if you hurt her, I'm going to hurt you, all right? So let's just get that clear. And it would feel so good to say that, right? I'm just being candid, right? And, and I, we've all been there. 
we want vengeance. We want justice. And justice means that I'm vindicated and you're buried. Man, that's, that's good to me, right? And so we get in this place. And now when we think about it in these terms, we can identify with Jonah. See, because if you were with us in chapter 1, as we went through, we looked at these Ninevites who Jonah is called to minister the gospel to. And Jonah, as you know, he would go to them, well, <clears throat> here's the background of the Ninevites. They're a wicked, brutal people. These Ninevites would stake their enemies into the ground, spread eagle, and leave them for the elements and the wild animals to slowly consume so that they would die a suffering, agonizing, painful death. They would take some of their victims and cut their eyelids off and make them stare at the sun until they were blinded. They would, many of them, be skinned alive. This was a particular skill set of the Ninevites. They perfected it. And they would skim their victims alive and make them to suffer a lingering death. See, your skin being the largest organ of your body, it's your main barrier against infection. And so what would happen is not only is it excruciatingly painful as they skin you alive, but then it's a matter of time where you are going to become infected and you're going to die this suffering slow death. And this was a certain skill set that they had perfected. They, many of their victims would be impaled and suspended in the air. Some of their victims would have their eyes gouged out or their hands or feet chopped off or their ears cut off or they would be made to march into burning pits. Several of their victims would have their tongues ripped out. This is the Ninevites. These are these horrible people. And Jonah, being a Jew and being part of the nation that would be chiefly uh, in contest with these people in, in terms of you know, them having these, these, these encounters and these, these battles. No doubt Jonah would have known people that had suffered at the hands of the Ninevites. And so when we put ourselves in that situation, when we think of Jonah being in this very real situation, just like Grace Fabian being in this very real situation, and God saying, I want you to extend the love of a merciful God to them, well, Jonah lost his lid. And man, I can relate to Jonah. I really can. You ever been in that place? You're just so angry with God because he didn't punish somebody the way you thought he should punish them, right? And we get into that place where, man, if I was God... Here's what would happen. And thank God I'm not God. Thank God you are not God. Because what happens is, man, God's loving and we're not. That's just the sad fact. That's just the basic truth. And see, what happens is we forget that the measure that we use not only will be measured back to us, but is measured back to us. You reap what you sow. And so if I was God, this whole world would function. Well, it wouldn't function in a loving way. See, the psalmist said this. The psalmist said that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. The prophet Joel said that God is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. The apostle Peter said that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
The Apostle John said this, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the great tragedy. I share that verse, and many of us go on autopilot. Church, take a walk with those words. Meditate on those words. John 3.16, God so loved you that he gave his son Jesus Christ to be tortured and killed. God help us for the times when that verse just becomes that thing that we know by rote, by memorization, just by, yeah, those are words. It just becomes so much background noise. God loves us. He loves this world. The person that you hate, you're like, well, that's a, that's a strong language there, Pastor Ted. Hate's a strong language. I know. And the chances are is that there's somebody in your heart this morning that you hate. And God died for them. God loves us. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It means you were no prize to be won. It means you didn't, you know, God didn't feel compelled to, oh, you know, he's such a good guy. Look at all the goodness that this guy does. No. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And so God loves these Ninevites. He went to great lengths to redeem these Ninevites. And the Ninevites responded to his grace, to his mercy, to his loving, outreaching extension of grace by saying, listen, you can't live the way you're going to live. You're going to face judgment. And they responded to God extending grace to them and not just bringing down fire like we would like God to bring on our enemies. Just kill them already, God. What are you waiting for? You and I both know this guy's a loser. Look at what he's doing. Why don't you judge him already? Because he's patient, because he's long-suffering, because he's being patient with him like he was patient with you someday. And isn't that just so funny? Because we, with God, we're like, we love it. Be patient with me, God. Be merciful with me. Thank you, God. I'll take all the grace I can get, and I'm always so grateful for it. But man, I resent it when it's extended to somebody else. And so it displeased Jonah greatly. Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord. By the way, just not in my notes, but just an aside. This is, this is the only second time that Jonah's prayed. Once from the belly of the fish, now he prays again. The only two times we see Jonah praying in the book are when he's put out. Right? The only two times we see Jonah praying is when, it, when he's inconvenienced, when things don't go according to his plan. And man, I'm so convicted by that because a lot of times I go to God, it's like, you know, uh, waiter, uh, I, got, I, got, I got a fly in my soup here. I got, I got an issue I got to talk to you about. So it displeased Jonah exceedingly, became angry. So he prayed to the Lord. 
And he said, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm, quoting there from the prophet Joel. And by the way, just this is the motive of Jonah's running. It's not because he was afraid or fearful or, or any other such thing. He ran because he didn't want to see the Ninevites get saved. And he knew that's who God was. And he hated them so much that he wanted to see them destroyed. And again, I just ask you the question, who do you hate this morning? Who do you want to see destroyed? Who do you want to see God judge? Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, he continues, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I would rather die than see you extend your grace and your mercy and forgiveness to those people. And then the Lord said, verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? See, at this point, I want to fast forward from this story 3,000 years into the future, and I want to... I want to take the focus off of Jonah and put the focus on you. You're like, I hate it when you do that. Yeah, well, let's, let's just focus on us for a minute. Who is that person on your list this morning? You're like, you know, I, don't, I really don't hate them. I just don't like them. All right, who is that person? And why are they on your list? What did they do to you? you know, did they slander you? Did they steal from you? Did they, you know let you down in some profound way? What is it? Why are they on your list? Get that picture in your mind. You got them? Well, here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to take a pen, either the one that's in your hand, I hope, because you're taking notes, or the one that's in the chair in front of you, and I want to challenge you, right next to verse 4 there, would you be courageous enough to write their name down? Can you write their name down? Would you write their name down? Maybe you just write their initials down. I got three names next to verse four. You're like, can I borrow your Bible, Pastor Ted? No, you can't. <laughs> but they're right there, Larry, Curly, and Mo, right in verse four. And I don't know about you. Here's, for me, I write these names down. I actually put the date down that I write the names down. I wrote today's date. What's the date today? It's National Atheist Day, because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's April Fool's Day, right? God's got this sense of humor, because it's like I'm writing down, oh, that guy's a fool, that guy's a fool, that guy's a fool. God's like, no, 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 that's not the point of this exercise, Pastor Ted. Write the name down. So here's the deal. If you had the guts to write a person's name down, and even if you didn't, I don't care. God's, God's <laughs> so good. That person's name's on your heart. You can't get away from it. You're welcome. Here's the deal. You know all about that person. You do. And maybe they're guilty of sin. And maybe they're not. I mean, we, we think we know the truth and God delights to show us that we don't. But see, here's the deal. I don't care what you know about that person. I don't care how true it may or may not be. See, the issue is, is God, he wants to be merciful to that person. He wants you to pray for that person. He wants you to forgive that person. God wants you to hope the best for that person. God would have you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
<clears throat> what is it that you want? What is it you hope for? <laughs> I'd like a little grace and I'd like a little mercy, please. I'd like a little understanding. I'd, I'd like a little of the benefit of the doubt. I'd like you to cut me a little bit of slack, please. I had a really bad day. That's what God wants you to do with that person. Listen, Jesus said this. He said, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. <clears throat> do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Peter said, hey, Lord, how often should I forgive my, the guy that sins against me? Up to seven times? Thinking, I'm being real generous, seven times. No, seven times, 70. And it's not the 449 issue that he's talking about. He's talking about this unlimited, no, it's, 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 it's hyperbole. It's, hey, you, you forgive always. Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. The Apostle Paul, in those words that Edmund Fabian penned the moment he was killed, said, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Love never fails. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, if you would. We're going to verse 21. In Matthew 18, excuse me, beginning in verse 21, Peter comes up to the Lord, Hey, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me put this in modern dollars. Talent of gold is about... 3,200 ounces, okay? And this guy owed him 10,000 of those. How much is that? That's somewhere over $50 billion, right? So, you know, if this guy gave 100% of everything that he made, if he was an, you know, an average American making an average American salary, if he gave every penny he made, it would take him somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 lifetimes to pay this guy back. He gave him half of his salary, somewhere over 50,000 lifetimes to pay this guy back. <laughs> but as he was not able to pay, verse 25, you think, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about two days' wages. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? 
and he would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so when his fellow servants saw that he, uh, what uh, had been done, they were grieved and they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Verse 35, Jesus brings it home, says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you. If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That word heart that he uses there, it's the, it's the Greek word cardia. Uh, we get cardio from that. You think of the heart, but here's literally what it means. It means the center of all life. And Jesus is saying, listen, if from the center of your life, you can't forgive as God forgave you, my heavenly Father also will do to you. You're not going to receive that forgiveness. Now, again, if you're a note taker in verse 34, he uses that word torturer. He says the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers. That word literally means torturous jailer. And the idea is that if we are in an unforgiving attitude and we refuse to forgive somebody and we hold on to unforgiveness, the idea is that it's imprisoned you. You're being tortured and imprisoned by that attitude of, I won't forgive. And some of you need to hear this today because you're imprisoned in your anger. Some of you are right now. It's been said, no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get better. And there are those of you this morning that are nursing a grudge. It's also been said that holding on to unforgiveness is is foolishness. It's like drinking poison to get even with the person that you're angry with. Right? Right? Who gets hurt when you drink poison? Well, it's you. And indeed, it's true. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, when we hold on to unforgiveness, it's us who pays the price. I'm not not harming that person. Buddy Hackett, one day, he said, you know what? I used to hold a grudge until I remembered that while I'm sitting being bitter, that guy's out playing tennis. You know? He's like going on with his life. Holding on to unforgiveness is like taking poison to get even with somebody else. I read a a study on the uh, physiological effects of anger and unforgiveness by the American Medical Medical Journal. They observed the following, quote, anger triggers the body's fight or flight response. Other emotions that trigger this response include fear, excitement, and anxiety. The adrenal glands flood the body with stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol. The brain shunts blood away from the gut and towards the muscles in preparation for physical exertion. So heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, respiration goes up, the body temperature rises, and the skin perspires. The constant flood of stress chemicals and the associated metabolic changes that accompany recurrent unmanaged anger can eventually cause harm to many different systems of the body. And then they list some of the short and long-term health problems that are linked to unmanaged anger. And they include migraine headaches, digestion problems, sleep disorders, stomach ulcers, increased anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. I'm just going to hang on to my anger at you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to an early grave, but I just won't forgive you. It's foolishness. Physically, it harms us. 
Emotionally, it harms us. Spiritually, it harms us because Jesus was asked, hey, what's the most important commandment of the law? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and most important commandment. He said, the second is like it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. And every, all the law and the prophets, all 66 books of your Bible, hinge on you loving God and loving others. And yet, I'm going to hold on to my anger. I'm going to hold on to my, my bitterness. I'm going to hold on to my unforgiveness. And, and here's what's amazing to me. As you go back to, to Jonah there, chapter 4, and in verse 4, God says to him, Jonah's in this place, man. He's angry. He's bitter. He's just, I just want to die. And God says to him in verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? And notice, what does Jonah say in return? Nothing. Absolute silence. He won't even answer God. Why won't he answer God? Well, when you go on and you read verses 5 and 6 and, 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 and all, you start to get a picture of why Jonah won't talk to God. And the basic, the basic thing that you come away with is Jonah won't even consider the fact that he's wrong. That's why he doesn't answer God. Hey, is it right for you to be angry? I'm not even going to dignify that with an answer. What do you mean is it right for me to be angry? Did you see what these people have done? He won't even consider that God's question is a legitimate question. And that's important. That's a dangerous place to be. And there's some of you here this morning, you're in that place. And it's like, is it right for you to be angry? You won't even dignify it with a response because you're like, of course it's right for me to be angry. I won't even consider that. See, instead of hearing what God wanted to say, Jonah began looking for what he wanted to see. Let me say that again because it's important. Instead of hearing what God wanted to say to him, Jonah began looking for what he wanted to see. Verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city and there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might, here it is, see what would become of the city. See, Jonah believed in his heart that Nineveh was full of horse manure. He thought that they were putting on a show. He thought that their, you know, repentance was all just an act. And he's like, I know better than you, God, and I know who they really are, so I'm going to remove myself, and I'm going to sit up on the hill, and I'm going to wait for you to find out the truth about them, God, and you to judge them, and I'll have a front row seat to watch, you know, some barbecue Ninevites. That's what I'm going to do. He wasn't going to hear what God wanted to say. He wanted to see what he wanted to see. And some of you are in that place and you're angry and you got that person and you got their name written down and you are living your life watching their every move. You stalk them on Facebook. You look and you see what are they're doing and what are the things that they're saying. And you talk to, to your, your neighbors and your friends. And what are they? You know I'm right. And what are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what you're doing because I do it too. You're building your case. And you're saying that person... Man, look at them, and this and that, and I just know this is going to happen. And you don't even allow room in there for God to say, hey, is that right? Is that right for you to do? And that's exactly what happens. And so verse 6, it says that the Lord God prepared a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. And so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now, 
Here's what you got to understand. In verse 5 and verse 6, it kind of sounds chronological. Like, uh, like Jonah made himself a shade, and then God prepared a plant for further shade. That's really not how this reads. I mean, it, it reads that way in the English, but really, when Jonah made his, his shade, you know, I use air quote, structure, no, God had prepared this plant, and Jonah was making his shade under the plant that God had prepared. That's the idea, okay? And, and here's what's important about that. See, because Jonah, where is he sitting at this moment as he's watching for the Ninevites to, to he's watching their move. He's stalking them on Facebook. He's like, I'm looking for the, 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 the real Ninevite. Well, the real Ninevite, please stand up so I can watch you get struck by lightning. Where is Jonah sitting when he's doing that? He's sitting in the shade that God has provided. Why is that significant? Well, because we too, when we're going to sit in that place and we're going to stalk and we're going to look for and we're going to build our case, we are sitting in the shade that God has provided us. In His graciousness, in His loving kindness, and in His forgiveness. Listen, the psalmist said this. The psalmist said, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. The psalmist said, Because you have been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. You see, just like the man in Jesus' parable, you and I, we've been forgiven a debt that we could never repay. And what happens is we, in that place of God covering our sin and abiding in the shade of his shelter under the shadow of his wings where he says, your sins, I'm going to remember no more. I'm going to cast them as far as the east is from the west. And we sit and we bask in the luxury of that shade while we want fire to come down and consume our enemies. This is exactly where where Jonah's at. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul asked this question. He says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We conveniently forgot, forget all the time, man, everything I have comes from God. A gift, a talent, ability, and hey, God's forgiveness, His grace, His long-suffering, I have it because of God's grace and mercy. And so verse 7, as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant, this shade that God had provided for Jonah, that it withered. And it happened... When the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind. Uh, And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And this is a a super irony because in verse 1, when it says that he became angry in the Hebrew, it means literally that he became hot. And so God is like, oh, you're hot? You're angry? Let me make you really hot. Let me take my shade away from you. Let me, let me cause you to roast a little bit yourself. You want me to roast them. <clears throat> and so he puts them in that position. He grew faint. And then he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And verse 9, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now listen to Jonah's response. This is Jonah's last recorded words in the entire book. He says, and he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. See, here's what's going on. At this moment, it looks like God is punishing Jonah. He's not punishing him. He's preparing him. 
See, because it's just a quick review. God has prepared a fish for Jonah. He's prepared a plant for Jonah. He prepared a worm. He prepared wind. And he did all of these things. Why? For what purpose? Well, here's the deal. Jonah is so self-centered. And I, I totally can't identify with him. I don't know anything about being selfish and self-centered. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know about you guys. No, we're all selfish. We're self-centered. We just like, it's, it's all about me, you know? And so what God does with Jonah is he's like, dude, is it really? You're going to get all hardened and, and all. I, you ran away from me, and I put you in a fish. I kept you alive for three days. You know, I'm, I've been so long-suffering with you. I gave you this plant to shade you. God's just trying to show Jonah, when I take care of you, you love it. Can you, can you see that? We had some friends. They, um, they went out to eat. Some, several mutual friends, they, they'd gone out to eat, and, and they got horrible service. Their, 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 their waiter was, waitress was, was not good at all. And so they were talking at the table, and they were talking about not giving her a tip. And one of the gals that was part of the group, she used to be a waitress. And she said, no, 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 you guys, you don't get it. She fought for this gal. She said, our service has been horrible. Yes, I'll give you that. What you guys don't understand, because you, you've never been in the business, but what you don't understand is that her manager has given her an impossible task. She's got all of these stations that she's responsible for. The poor gal is doing everything she can. It's not her fault. And the complaint that you've got about your food, that the cook did that. That wasn't her fault. You know, and so she's doing everything. And, and why could she sympathize with her in this way? Because she'd been in her shoes. She'd gone through that experience. She said, no, 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 no. Not only are we going to give her a tip, we're going to give her the best tip that she's ever gotten in her life. Because this poor gal needs some encouragement. And see, she could do that because she'd been in her shoes. And really, what's going on here, God's not punishing Jonah in this. What he's doing is he's preparing Jonah. And he's trying to bring Jonah to the place. Can you see, Jonah? From the way that I've taken care of you, and from these silly little examples, can you get out of you, just me, myself, and I party, to see that I'm loving, that I'm long-suffering, that I'm reaching out for? Can you see beyond yourself? And that's exactly what God goes on to say to him in verse 10. But the Lord God said in response to Jonah, yes, it's right for me to be angry, even to death. The Lord God says, verse 10, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. It's a plant. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And what God is saying there is, look, there's 120,000 children there. Don't know their right hand from their left hand let alone, you know, adults and, and, and all. I mean, for the sake of even these kids that are so innocent, I mean, you're all worried about the plant. What about these kids that don't know their right hand from their left hand? And all these livestock. Jonah, really? And that's where the movie ends. You ever gone to one of those movies? You're like, all of a sudden, the credits start rolling. You're like, What? What, did they run out of money? They didn't film the last scene? What happened? And so here we are. We're like, wait, 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 whoa. What does Jonah do? I don't know. What are you going to do? See, this is a place where it's like Jonah's got a decision to make. 
And today, guys, we have a decision to make. The decision is, are we going to understand God is, love of, God is a God of love, of grace, of mercy, of compassion. He's long-suffering. He desires that, that none should perish, but that all should come to that saving faith in Him and experience everlasting life. And that there are no good people in heaven, guys. You know, again, I've said it before, we, all, we think of ourselves as, you know, the Christians are the guys with the white hats and the, and the non-Christians, they're all the ones with the black hats and, and you know, they're, the, they're the, the, the bad guys and the cowboys and Indians think we, go, we wear the white hat. No, we're all wearing black hats. And so the movie ends, the curtain closed, the scene is, is finished. We ask what happened to Jonah. What next? What did he do? I say, what happened to you? What's next? What do you do with this? For some of you today, and I, and I hadn't planned on saying this, but I'm feeling led of the Spirit to say it. For some of you today, today's your last chance. That's heavy. Guys, hear my heart on this. That's not me. For some of you today is your last chance. You need to let go. And you need to forgive. Jesus said that if we are going to experience the forgiveness that God will extend to us, we ourselves need to forgive. And I realize in a message like this, some of you are sitting there in your chair and you're saying, Pastor Ted, you don't know a thing. You didn't grow up in my home. You didn't suffer the abuse that I suffered. You weren't raped. You weren't beaten. No, I wasn't but I know one who was beaten for my sins unjustly. And he's forgiven. And he's calling us to forgive. 